Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast, or you can subscribe on your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or CastBox. Views expressed by participants are personal. Many people have made the jump from media sales to agency life, but few have left the world of media sales to start their own agency. But that's exactly what Zoltan Toth, managing director of Miller Croy, has done. A lifelong music aficionado, Zoltan's first media gig was at the campus radio station in university, overseeing the jazz time slot. After graduation, he parlayed that passion into a full-time career, holding positions at Denon Music, Koch Entertainment, and Entertainment One. He pivoted to media sales at Famous Players, looking after the emerging world of in-movie theater advertising. Famous Players was eventually bought by Cineplex Entertainment, and after nine years with the company, he made his first entrepreneurial foray into agency life with Octopus Media. Zoltan's latest venture is Miller Croy, a boutique agency providing senior-level media buying and planning expertise to a variety of clients. Miller Croy is a media agency. We're like every other media agency. We buy, we plan, we do strategy. Um, we're just a lot smaller. We're very boutique. My role is really the business development end of it. And uh, right now, I've been doing a lot of overseeing of the planning for clients. I don't get involved with the day-to-day nitty-gritty. However, I will get my team to, uh, you know, sort of do the back-end work and, and essentially just make sure that the clients are getting what they had asked for and uh, really just seeing it through, seeing the service through. Let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? Oh, I'm from Toronto. I'm a Toronto boy. Uh, born and raised. The only time I wasn't here was when I went to Western, when I went to university in London. So you spent your entire life here with that exception. That's right. Yeah. So you've seen the neighborhood change. I have. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I remember Queen Street. I'm not going to date myself here, but I remember Queen Street when it was literally three blocks or two, if, if, if we were lucky back then. And it was just a bunch of like you know, thrift shops and, and vintage shops. And, uh, of course the horseshoe was always there, but you see how, what a world stage city Toronto is with all the development and you see it push out to the East and West ends. Of course, the suburbs, the suburbs are now becoming part of this greater downtown. It's always, it was a big city back then. It's a huge city now. So do you have any interests or hobbies growing up? I was always into sports. That was always my big thing. You're a big hockey player, aren't you? I wouldn't say I'm a big hockey player, but I've played it since I was five. That whole career basically ended me up in beer league. So, <laughs> I mean, we are uh, we have goals, right? Um, so, but the cool thing is, is I, I actually play with my sons now in uh, in beer league while they're sort of transitioning out of uh, minor league hockey. So, it's a lot of fun when you get to play with your kids. Speaking of kids. You set your parents as being your biggest influence. Why? They were immigrants from Europe, specifically Hungary, and they came. They came during a time when it was, it was there was turmoil and war in uh, the '56 revolution. So they, my my dad came in the mid. He came in '56 to Toronto, and then he went back like every other you know immigrant at the time. They would come here, establish themselves, um, not necessarily get citizenship, but they would you know, buy some property, line some work up, save some money and go back and get married. That was the way you did it. And that's what they did. So when they came back together as a married couple, um, they started, uh, they raised a family and they started their own businesses. So they were entrepreneurial then? Yes. What, What did they do? Like what businesses did they own? So my dad had, my dad was 
uh, had a landscape construction company and he started that in the mid sixties and he had it right up until he retired. He did everything from interlocking to he had a whole team and I actually worked for him in the summers. So, and then my mom was a daycare owner. So she had a bunch of daycares that she ran for about 35, 40 years. So yeah, it was, it was really uh, interesting to see them go through uh, what I'm going through now, which is to run a business, um, not just a media agency, but you know, uh, you've got to deal with every aspect of the business when you own it. So back then I didn't truly appreciate what they were going through. And now I really do because I got to have to live it and breathe it like they did. But apart from your parents, you also cite your sister as having a pretty big impact on your life because you're a big music fan. And wasn't she the one that pointed you towards it or helped you discover that passion? She did. Yeah. So she came home with all kinds of crazy vinyl and I didn't know what it was. I was a kid. I was like, 11, 12, 13, something like that. And, uh, yeah, she introduced me to punk rock, which, you know, back in the early eighties, like sex pistols we're talking about, like, yeah, like England and then LA and New York and all the punk movements that were happening across the world. It was pretty exciting. It was kind of like, um, somebody said it years ago about, um, listening to the damned, this band called the damned from England, listening to the damned was like, it was kind of like going into a room and hearing glass break for four minutes. And that's really, you know, it was just like chaos, but it was controlled chaos and it turned into a huge movement. Um, so she was a huge influence and, and we're still very close uh, today. And um, yeah, so she was a huge influence. About punk rock music, was it just the music in general or was it like the rebellious nature of the lyrics and what it stood for that really pulled you in? Yeah, because a lot of people talk about, about how it was it's like an attitude and it's a movement and it's more than just the music. But for me, it was really just the music. It was so outrageously different and it was, uh, it was so raw and out there. Like it just, you know, and then the, what it, what it spawned was so many different movements within it, even today. So I was never really like a political, like anarchist or anything like that. That's just not who I am or ever was, but I just liked the sound. I liked the music and it was so simple and kind of powerful. The only non-family member you cite as an influence is Neil Young. Why him? Well, I have a couple actually. Neil Young was, you know, not just because he's Canadian. I mean, that helps, but he's, uh, he's always been innovative. And in the media world, it's always about what's new and what's different. Mm -hmm. We know, and as you know, Vic, you know, on the sales side, it's always how many times do you hear from a client that says, Vic, I want to do this. It's never been done before. Like, oh, how yeah. many times does that happen in a, in a week? Out of the box, media first, you know what it is. Yeah, I hear that all the time. Yeah, so when I sort of strip all that, that, that bigger theme down and think of him, he, you know, from all the different bands he was in before he went on his own, and then when he was on his own, all the different things that he did, um, he did folk records, he did country records, he did... He did like a weird eighties, almost like a synthesized record. Like he went all over the place. He did a rockabilly record. He did a punk record. He did like, you name it. He's done it all. So all that to say, he's just, he's just tried everything. He's never been afraid to discover within himself what, what was possible. So I just always thought of him when, you know, when you make the leap from working for a company for so long to going out on your own, you know, there's days where you're like, I can't think of anything that's really new and exciting, but then there's other days where you've got 20 ideas. So it's just constantly 
reminding myself of what he's done and how he continues to do it. And he's almost 80, right? So pretty impressive. Your very first job, I think we already touched on it, was working for your dad's landscaping company. What's it like having your dad as your boss for your very first job? That's a good question because he's your dad and you have to work for him. I think it just, it's an adjustment because like any employer, if they ask you to do something, you're employed by them, you have to do it. That's yep. just the way it works. So that took some time. You know, I was young too, but I, I learned pretty quickly that, you know, he was in charge and, and I was, I had to do what he said. So <laughs> years of backbreaking work is, is what, what entailed after that. But no, it was, it was all positive. It just, it, there was definitely an adjustment when you're working in with family, you know? During this time, though, you packed your bags and you moved to London, Ontario to go to the University of Western Ontario. You already touched on that that was the only time moving away from Toronto. London is significantly smaller than Toronto, but I wouldn't say it's a small town. Was there a bit of culture shock when you landed there? A little bit, actually, because the downtown core is about 10 blocks. And, of course, Toronto's blocks are just endless. It just keeps going. Yeah, it's not quite like New York, but it's, it's you know considerably bigger. Uh, I think with London though, you learn very quickly, like most university towns in Ontario, that, that the university is the city. Yeah. And so that was quite evident. Um, but I had a great time there and it was a, it's a great school. What did you study at university? I did a, I did a sort of combined poli-sci economics degree. I wanted to go to business, but I just kept pursuing what I was studying and it was, it was going fine. Uh, at the time. And I just, I got my degree. And uh, one thing that, that I did uh, at the same time is I was a volunteer at the radio station. And that, that was a big part of how I landed my first job um, post university. So I was, uh, I was a volunteer at CHRW um, 94.7 um, on your <laughs> FM dial. Is that your radio voice? Did you just click in there for a second? I think so. I think so. <laughs> Busted. <laughs> <laughs> and that was an awesome experience. I, I, I wanted to, this is okay. This is going back in the early nineties. So in the era of like grunge and alternative music, and I wanted one of those cool time slots. I really did. But of course they were all taken and I was a newbie volunteer. And so after filing hundreds and thousands of records in the library and organizing and realizing that this was not great, uh, there was an opportunity to, to do a show from one to three and, uh, it was afternoon jazz. The most interesting thing about it is I knew absolutely nothing about jazz. Like not even Louis Armstrong, if you can believe that. I didn't know anything. No Miles Davis, nothing? Nothing. Like I, I had no idea. But of course the program manager um, at the time said, hey, do you want to do this? Do you know anything about jazz? I'm like, yeah, I can, I can figure it out. Yeah, I'm confident. He goes, are you confident you can do a jazz show? I said, of course I can. Yeah. Fake so, it till you make it. <laughs> so I... I I got a book, this like, um, encyclopedia of, uh, of basically the A to Z in jazz. And I just read through it. However, I needed to do a show and I didn't have any material. I had nothing prepped. So I asked the guys that were doing that cool alternative show before me, cause they saw I was sweating and I was going on in about 15 minutes and they said, Hey, uh, Hey buddy, what's going on? Are you okay? And I said, uh, actually, no, I'm not okay. I have to do a jazz show and I don't know what I'm doing. And they said, Oh, easy. Just play, just play like live stuff. Um, because the songs are like 23 minutes long. So it'll, they'll give you enough time to figure out what we're going to do next. That's true. Jazz songs can go on forever. 
So I played all this weird German fusion jazz, which was like <laughs> 18 to 20 minutes long. And it, it was, it worked for the first few episodes. Uh, it worked really well. But of course, when you're doing a show in Canada, you have to do Canadian content. Mm, that's true. So trying to find um, Canadian jazz was interesting. But you know what? I just went for it. I Again, going back to Neil Young, it's like, just try it. See, it, see, like, don't be afraid to do it. And I was a little bit nervous trying to figure it out, but I figured it out. And then I eventually got the show that I wanted, but it wasn't until my, my uh, fourth year when I was graduating. And it was only because the guys that weren't doing it just didn't worse they stopped showing up so um so by default i got uh, i got uh, i got probably about 10 shows but it was a lot of fun it was great great experience and i you know i got to see how a recording studio worked i got to work on some commercials so um i was considering going to ryerson for the a radio and television program afterwards but i started working so you know that's that's where things went then Okay, you alluded to it earlier, though, that this was kind of the gateway to your first job in media and out of university. Where did you land and what were you doing? Well, not not media, actually my first job. Yeah. So in the corporate working world was working for a music distributor, so for a record company. We can call it media, I guess. We'll sort call of. it media, we'll hard, call it me hard media, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I started working for Denon, and you know Denon for all their uh, audio components, um, high-end uh, amps and receivers. Mm -hmm. I'm familiar with them. Well, at the time they they had uh, they had a music division, and they were distributing some really cool labels at the time. Uh, one of which you might know, which is Sub Pop, which is the home of Nirvana and uh, Mud Honey. So some of the early bands uh, that became huge. So I knew somebody. The only reason how I got there was I knew somebody from CHRW 94.7. So you networked your way in. <laughs> I knew somebody, I, I saw them at a show and they, they asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm working for my dad, as you know. And I said, well, we're working for this cool little record label and we need some help. So I said, okay, well, they said, come on in and, and meet the uh, manager. So I did. And they said, we could only keep you on for a month. And this was in, this is when during a recession. So it was tough to even... Oh, geez. We're talking about like 93-ish, 93? Yeah. So it was, a, it was tough to get a job anywhere. I was lucky just to be working for my dad. I never thought about that, that there, are, there is a graduating cohort of students who get caught up in a recession. It's timing and it's, yeah, you're either lucky or not. So I, they said, you, we can keep you for a month, but after that, we're not sure. Well, that turned into a year, and then I was there for about three years. And then from there, and I learned a ton. It was great. I mean, so were you selling music to retail locations then? Not, no, not at Denon. I was, uh, they called it CSR, so I was a customer service rep. So I would go around to retail and do inventory counts of our product. Okay. And then I would, uh, I, I did some uh, window displays. I had to pick up some artists from the airport. That was interesting. I had to pick up Coolio and his uh, posse. Uh, you got a story there? I got a good story, yeah. So the car I had was this uh, beige Volvo, 1984. Oh, geez. This was before was a Volvo's became sexy. Yeah. It was uh, not a sexy car. It was my first car. It was not only beige outside. It was beige inside. So, <laughs> so it was uh, all beige all day. So we... so. Coolio was on Tommy Boy Records, and Tommy Boy at the time was a huge hip-hop label, and uh, they were coming in to do a bunch of shows in the city. 
and they didn't have anybody to pick them up. So my boss said, hey, I need you to do me a huge favor. Can you pick up Coolio, his MC, and his uh, his DJ guy, and their manager? So I'm like, well, I've got my car. So I pulled up. <laughs> I pulled up at the uh, arrivals. <laughs> I think it was Terminal 1 back in the day. And uh, there's Coolio, you know? And he is hilarious. They were, um, they all had their sunglasses on. I, you know, this tall, skinny kid gets out of the car and there's these like hip hop superstars from LA, Compton actually. And, uh, they look at me like they just saw a ghost and, <laughs> and I said, Hey, uh, I'm Zoltan from Denon, uh, here to help Tommy boy records. And Hey, come on, I'm gonna take you guys to the show. And I got to tell you, they, um, were a little bit weird at first, but they, they put all their gear in my car and, uh, I took them to the hotel and then they met up with their publicist and it was like at the end of it when I, and of course I had to drop them off at the airport. <laughs> they gave me a nice group hug and, uh, it was awesome. It was like a really great experience, but, uh, the looks on their faces, they were expecting like some kind of a, you know, limousine or something cool sport utility vehicle not no. a four or five year old volvo not no so anyway that was that was pretty fun so from there you moved to koch entertainment how did you get there and what did you do so denon's division started to change and uh the my boss left to start his own distribution company and when he left things changed so we all started to look for new homes there was about three of us that went to koch and koch was this was the largest independent music distributor in the US. And they were building their presence in Canada. And the guys that ran it hired me and I worked there for a number of years. We, I got a chance to work on that Prodigy record, which was huge, The Fat of the Land. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, it's, is that the one that really put them on the map? It did, and, and we were the, like, the little upstart you know, distributor. And that happened. You would, you would be banging your head against the wall trying to you know, sell these releases that were so tough at back at back during then, but along came a, a bluebird, as they say, and it, it hit us in the forehead and we had this huge record. It sold millions and it put them on the map. So um same with their label, XL Recordings, which is a, a really big label now. So from there you moved to famous players. A bit of a pivot because this was probably your first time in media sales? Yes, it was. So interesting story was I was I was at Koch and um, my wife and I at the time were expecting our twins. She was working for famous players in media sales and I had met her boss and he had met me on a bunch of functions like prior to like in the past couple of years while she was working there. So long story short is that she was going on mat leave and he took a liking to me and liked my background and, and he said, well, he said to Sarah, he said, well, why don't you, instead of me hiring somebody, why don't you just let your husband take my role? And I thought, no, you know, that's where my pride came in. No, no, I don't need to take your job. It's fine. And then, then we did the numbers and I said, well, you know, I'll do it for a year while you come back. So I took that role as, as an account manager of Famous Players Media for a year and I had such a good year that uh, we both decided that I should just keep going. 
So that lasted for about nine years. At what point did Cineplex come in and buy Famous Players? It was 2005. 2005. So you'd been with Famous Players for, what, four to five years or so? And then Cineplex came in and things changed from there? Famous Players Media, yeah, it was on the sell. Viacom was selling off Famous Players. They were selling off a lot of things. They sold off uh, Canada's Wonderland. They sold off, they sold off a lot of properties and... Uh, Famous Players was one of them. So Cineplex came in and bought them. You know, the number one reason they bought the 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 exhibitor was because of the media division. And we weren't, I'm not patting our own backs here, but we were so, we had such a great sales force at the time. We were doing so well that uh, just the, the business, the media business of the, of Famous Players was so massive that um, automatically it injected a huge opportunity for Cineplex when, when they bought Famous Players. So that was in 2005. And things changed pretty quickly. Cineplex, very corporate, um, public company, you know, the reporting, the quarterly reporting, everything changed. And that was a huge adjustment because we were, you know, we were, um, when we started at Famous Players Media, I think it was, you know, the division was, it was so tiny and you know, this is back when they still had the carousel slides. Um, I don't know if you remember I that. I remember the carousel slides, yeah. Yeah, it was like those old uh, Kodak projectors that, you know. It was kind of the precursor to the pre-movie show that they've got now. That's right. It was just slides, no motion. That's right. And, and uh, the great thing about that acquisition was that along with it came a ton of resources and a really great opportunity for, for the, the new company to advance and evolve in the media world. And with that came, you know, the full motion, the 35 millimeter was then replaced mm. by projection and cineplex.com happened. And then their mobile app, um, everything's all digital now. And they are a powerhouse in terms, you know, they're the, really the only one stop for in theater advertising, but it was great. It was really, I learned so much about, about media, about business, about, agencies, clients, everything. It was a really great, sort of great experience. It was, um, it really sort of put me where I am now. You started as an account manager and moved up to director. You said in both roles you had to sell, but what was the difference between doing the AM role and the director role? The account manager role was more just a day to day. You've got a territory and you work it and you try to get as much revenue as you can out of it with the director. Typically in most sales organizations, a director would mean you have a team under you and then you've got quotas and you have to, you know, hit your numbers accordingly. However, uh, you know, when we were back, back then it was, there wasn't much difference other than some corporate accounts with the director, um, responsibility. I was working on Scotiabank, Labatt, uh, Coca-Cola, and these were big corporate accounts because Coke was pouring in the theaters. Hmm. Uh, Scotiabank was the sponsorship partner. Um, obviously, they named theaters after the Scotiabank. The scene program happened. So the director role was really more of a, um, a corporate title, if you will. Um, but it was still selling 100% of the time. What made you leave Cineplex after nine years and go out on your own and start Octopus Media? Well, I always wanted to start my own business and... You know, the timing was right. I was at a certain age and I thought if I was going to do it, I should do it now and not when I'm older. And so I had an opportunity to start an agency and, and I went for it. So it was pretty quickly after I left. It was about three months after. 
I started Octopus Media with a business partner, and we had that for four years um, until I went off again and rebranded to Mallorcroix. Did you see a gap in media buying and planning that you thought you could personally fill? I did. I thought, you know, I have so much respect for the big agencies and what they do, for the amount of people they employ and for the large accounts that they manage. But I did see that there was a tendency of high turnover. It definitely had a lot of high turnover at agencies. Lots of high turnover. You know, we all get it. Like, you know, we're young people at the, at some point in time trying to make an impression in this business. And so you, you know, you work at one agency and then you get offered a little bit more at another and you just keep moving. So I thought for the clients, that could be a tough situation to be in most of the time. So why not have seasoned professionals that could always be there and that could offer, you know, that could make quick decisions based on experience and not have that high turnover and provide good service. So it was this kind of approach like, you know, being nimble, being small enough that you could get a lot done and not have to, you know, go through too many hoops. So it's really just trying to change the model for the client a little bit is really, that was my differentiator. Who were some of your first clients? Some of my first clients were uh, West 49, which was a retailer at the time. I think they're still around. I think they're still in a handful of malls. But they uh, they were bought by YM Inc., which is Susie Shear and Blue Notes. Uh, it's a big um, sort of discount retailer. But at the time, they were on the cutting edge of this lifestyle, you know, apparel. They owned skater apparel in the 90s and the early 2000s. That's right. So they were instrumental in some of the, the coolest brands, you know, O'Neill, um, Billabong. Their own private label of West 49 was, you know, you saw the T-shirts and you saw the stickers everywhere. Yeah, that did well. So they had a, a really great, you know, a great run. And that was a client of mine that I worked with initially. Uh, I also worked with Canadian Diabetes Association, you know, HMV, which was, uh, you know, long history back in the music days. But I had a good rapport with them and helped them out on a number of projects. So those were some of the early clients that I worked with. So you got retail, we've got petroleum and energy, not-for-profit. Is there a particular category that you enjoy planning and buying or working on? Not really. I, you know, what I've learned is that every, every client has a, uh, you know, they've got a business problem or they've got, they, they need to solve an issue um, with their, you know, with their marketing dollars. And so how, you know, how can we help them? It, I can you know, whether it's retail or not-for-profit or a B2B. I've been doing a lot of B2B lately with uh, my existing agency, and it's been it's been great work. I really enjoy... I've always been in the consumer side, even with uh, in theater. It was always B2C, uh, but working on some B2B has been great. So, yeah, to answer your question, Vic, it's not... I don't really have a pre preference as long as we can help them with the end result. Is there a particular campaign you're proud of? Yeah, we worked on uh, this uh, Take the Test with Canadian Diabetes, and really it was to create, create, sorry, create awareness of type 2 uh, diabetes, and it was like a risk. Um, are you at risk? And it, it, literally, it literally did take two minutes, which is why they called Take Two Minutes. 
um, to do this. Uh, it was kind of, it was like a, it was really a, not really an app, but it was, uh, it was a web-based browser that was really easy to use and you could just fill it out. And it, it we, we applied a lot of, uh, digital media to it. And so taking the test was considered as a conversion, um, or an acquisition, if you will. And so we were given a lot of hurdles. So we had a, a budget that was scaled back three times yet the end goal was still the same. They still wanted the same number of, uh, of tests taken, but they kept dropping the budget. So that's a tough situation to be in. Looking back, I think I would, be, I would have been a lot more, you know, um, firm on, well, if you're going to drop the budget, then we'll have to adjust the expectations have got to come down. Exactly. However, you know, it's going back to that whole Neil Young thing. It's like, let's see if we can do it. And we over-delivered by, you know, I think we needed to get 120,000 tests taken and we got 180. So that was huge. That was a really big, um, coup for us, not coup, but it was an accomplishment, you know, and, and it, it's a kind of a personal thing too, because my sister is diabetic and, um, I've seen her kind of deal with it over, you know, last 30 years. So, um, it felt good to kind of help a cause that was, you know, a little closer to me than, than other campaigns. You're an ex-sales rep. This is your first foray, or that was your first foray into media buying, planning, or agency life. Are you a little bit more empathetic for the clients you used to chase, uh, chase for money? Sure. I mean, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> get, you know, understanding both sides is great. And, um, you know, I put myself in some of the sales rep shoes that I deal with and yeah, I, I look at myself, I, I can see myself in those situations. Sales is something that you, it's like, um, it's like athletes, right? Athletes for the most part, professional athletes have, you know, natural skill and talents and that's great, but to be successful and to win championships, they have to work hard. And so I think sales is like that. You have to work at it. You have to, um, always be sharpening your skills and learning and figuring out new things. So it's, it, it's ongoing. I think if you, if you stop doing that, then, then you are going to be just chasing people for, for that sale, or you gotta, you got braces to pay for. And you know, that's the only reason you're calling them. You don't want to help them. You just want to sell them something, which, you know, most of the time, nine times out of 10, it never really works out. So I think, yeah, I, I, I definitely am, am fortunate that I can have seen both sides, but it definitely helps me when I'm speaking with, uh, you know, with media suppliers, I understand where they're coming from and it's good. I get a good rapport. Uh, and I think they respect me because I did what I used to do what they do now. And so, and now I also understand and and absolutely appreciate what agency people go through because now I'm experiencing it. So it's been, it's been really interesting. How did Meller Croy come about? So we, we wound down Octopus Media, uh, in 2014. And then essentially it was a rebrand to Meller Croy. Um, my partner and I business partner at the time, uh, took different directions. And then I, uh, I essentially just started Meller Croy and had partners at the time. And then two years ago, it, I solely own it now. And how does Miller Croy differ from Octopus Media? Octopus Media started as, it started as a bit of a rep, like a media sales uh, agency. 
um, at first because that's all we knew how to do. Um, but then we started to get requests from clients like, hey, can you broker this deal? Can you help us out with this buy? We just don't have time to do it. And we started getting a lot more requests like that. So then we very quickly said, okay, well, we don't really need to rep anything. We'll just, we'll, we know that we'll be an agency and we'll do buys on behalf of our clients and plans. So it was, it sort of started as a hybrid. Mallory from day one was always a, you know, buying and planning agency. And we never steered away from that. You got to tell the story though, about how you came up with the name Miller Croy. Cause I think it's a very clever. Thanks. It's, um, well, it, it plays it, into your passions for music. It does. Yeah. I think in a, in a, you can beat your head against a wall all day long to try and figure out what you want to name your company. And it's, uh, it can be an exhausting task for sure. So I thought, well, let's just make it simple. So I, I kind of Frankenstein the name. I, basically built it out of nothing. So it, uh, Meller is the middle name of a musician, uh, John, jo, uh, sorry, Joe Strummer from the clash is his middle name is Meller. And then there's a little town, uh, North of London called Croydon. So I just took Meller and Croydon and I chopped off the D O N and there you have Meller Croy. Why, why Croydon though, of all the places you could have picked, why does that one stand out for you? Well, because one, one, another member in the band is from Croydon. Okay. So I just I did some kind of... So it um, all comes back to the clash. Yeah, it does. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I could have just said that. <laughs> okay. A couple of rapid fire questions for you. Your favorite song? So that's like an impossible question for somebody who's a music fan, but I have to say it's, it's Kick Out the Jams by the MC5. Um, it's just an absolute like barn burner of a song. If you've ever, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but I can't say that I have. But maybe after today's pod, you can go and check it out. Uh, it's it's a live recording, um, but it is just it's such a powerful. Um, it is pretty political. The the nature of the song. Again, it's not any, anything to do with my stances, but I just I just love the sheer uh, power of the song. It's it's everything that makes sense to me about music your favorite band should we be surprised that they are the clash <laughs> yeah that's another tough one i've got so many favorite bands but that's the one that my sister first introduced me so i've got to you know it always comes back to them but from them there's so many others it's it's really vic it's really an unfair question okay. but but um you know we've known each other for a bit so this is okay so is this one unfair as well your favorite singer yeah. Again, yeah. There's so many great uh, voices out there. I'll have to say it's it's Neil Young or David Bowie. Either one of those two. Best band or singer to see live. I've seen a lot of bands over the years, but there's a recent one. There's a band out of San Francisco called uh, the OCs, and it's fronted by a guy named John Dwyer, and he's a guy that probably no one has ever heard of, or his band. However, they've been around for probably 25 years. And if you ever see them live, um, he's actually his own roadie. So he, he tunes all his own oh, instruments. Wow, okay. He's an absolute like perfectionist when it comes to this. But they're just unbridled. Like, they come out and they just they blow your head off on stage. They're really, really great. I, I think they're one of the best live bands I've ever seen. Favorite movie? Favorite movie. It's another tough one. Yeah, I worked so long in the movie business, but... I don't know. I gotta say, like, and this may sound pretentious. I might get uh, I might get ripped on later, but um, I 
I did like Robert Altman films and Nashville, I thought was such a strange, crazy, one of the longest films I've ever seen. But after watching it a few times, I really understood what was going on. And um, I just liked his style of, of filmmaking. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? Bit of a cheeky answer here, but I would say buy more tech stocks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you on that. Yeah. Right. I don't think I need to say any more than that. Tech stocks or fake meat stocks. There you go. My signature closing question. If you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? I'd probably still be in sales, to be honest with you. I think because I really enjoyed it and I was pretty good at it. I think I'm still doing it. You know, you're still still selling the clients, selling them on ideas and, and uh, you know, concepts and, and campaigns, right? So Always be selling. Yeah, pretty much. No steak knives yet, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I definitely uh, would still be doing that for sure. Zoltan, thanks so much. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Vic. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or CastBox. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova. <laughs>